With a stroke of the pen, Putin makes his first move. The lead starts right now. Fast-moving developments in the Ukraine crisis, Russian President Putin just decided to recognize two areas of Ukraine as independent. Now President Biden declares economic sanctions on those regions. Then, how about another COVID shot with a flu chaser next fall? Health officials now discussing the timing of a possible fourth dose of the vaccine. And if you can't physically force them out, how about just taking away their resources? Canadian officials want to cut off funding of the trucker-inspired protests. Welcome to a special edition of The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we begin today with breaking news in our world lead and a move by Russian President Vladimir Putin that Western leaders are already condemning as a breach of international law. This afternoon, Putin signed documents officially recognizing two parts of Ukraine as independent territories. Russia has been purposefully destabilizing the regions for years, arming and financing separatists in an eight-year war that has cost 14,000 lives. And moments ago, we just learned President Biden spoke with Ukraine's president after Putin's announcement, and the White House has just released a statement previewing an executive order and new sanctions in response to Putin. Our team of reporters are on the ground in the region covering all these angles. Clarissa Ward is in Kyiv, Ukraine. Alex Markhart is in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. And Jill Doherty is in Moscow. But let's start with CNN's MJ Lee live at the White House. MJ, what can you tell us about the White House reaction to this move by Vladimir Putin? Yeah, Pam, this is the first formal reaction that we have gotten from the White House in response to Putin saying that it would recognize, Russia would recognize the independence of these two separatist regions in eastern Ukraine. Uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki just released a statement saying President Biden is preparing to sign a new executive order. The statement says that it would prohibit new investment, trade and financing by Americans to, from and in that region. It also said that this executive order would allow the U.S. to sanction anybody that is operating in that region. Uh, Jen Psaki made clear, though, in this statement that all of this would be in addition to other actions that, that, that the United States has been preparing to take uh, if Russia goes through with an invasion of Ukraine. And we know that uh, throughout this crisis, uh, U.S. officials at the highest levels have been in touch with their counterparts uh, in uh, Ukraine. And we know that earlier this this afternoon, the White House announced that President Biden again spoke with, with uh, the Ukrainian president. This was a phone call that lasted some 35 minutes, though we don't have a full readout of that conversation yet. And just in the last hour, we also know that President Biden has convened another phone call uh, with the leaders of Germany uh, and Britain as well. So uh, we know that these uh, phone calls uh, are happening, uh, these uh, phone calls with uh, world leaders. And this flurry of activity, of course, uh, is going on as the U.S. is trying to figure out whether Russia is, in fact, going to invade uh, Ukraine. But everything, all the language that we heard over the weekend is that things are incredibly serious and U.S. officials are now warning that if Russia were to invade, it would be incredibly violent. Pam. Yeah, the, the president's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, did not mince words on that. MJ Lee at the White House. Thank you. And let's go live to our team of reporters in Russia and Ukraine now. Uh, Jill, I want to go to you first. 
what is your reaction to these sanctions that Biden is reportedly going to put in place? We want to note these are more limited sanctions. This is These are not the sanctions we've been hearing from U.S. officials that they were threatening to put in place. This is more limited, Jill. Is this really going to deter Putin in any way? Well, these obviously would not, but I guess there must be some reason. I mean, how many American business people are doing business in Lugansk People's Republic? But but I think, obviously, as they're saying, there are more sanctions to come. And I can tell you, Pam, that this was really a dramatic moment, because we all knew by the afternoon that President Putin would be signing this recognition of uh, those two breakaway regions. But we didn't expect that there would be basically an hour-long recitation of history of Ukraine the way Vladimir Putin sees it, which is essentially boils down to, look, Ukraine isn't even a country. It was created by ripping away pieces of Russia to create Ukraine. And then he broadened it out. He talked about NATO and essentially said that, that, you know, it is Russia that is being surrounded by NATO, and we, they, we are the enemy to them. So it went much further. And I think the last part where he says um, Kiev, the Kiev regime, as they call it, the Ukrainian government, has to immediately stop this uh, military action or, or else all responsibility for any continual uh, bloodshed will be entirely on the conscience of the Ukraine regime. So that was quite chilling. And I think, you know, looking back at what this means, I think it is setting the scene and maybe in a kind of, in his interpretation, legal, although that's in quotes, uh, basis for doing more. Mm -hmm. Point is, we just don't know what that precisely will be. Right. And on that note, I want to go to you, Clarissa, because as Jill pointed out, the speech today by President Putin went far beyond the moment of just uh, of recognizing the independence of the Donbass region, which is still significant. Um, But he went far beyond that. In Ukraine, is there a sense that they are bracing for a larger conflict to take place, that this was just the precursor setting the stage for something bigger to happen? Well, President Volodymyr Zelensky is meeting with his security council now, and you can be sure that they will be releasing some kind of a statement. He also spoke to President Biden. He's scheduled to speak to Prime Minister Boris Johnson as well. But make no mistake about it, exactly what Jill said is true. This was a truly extraordinary speech, 57 minutes, in which, frankly, the headline was not that President Putin would violate international law and end the Minsk agreements by announcing that he recognized the independence of these two breakaway republics. The headline was that he very clearly appeared to be laying the groundwork for doing much more. As Jill said, he completely negated the idea that Ukraine is even a a sovereign nation. He talked about it as a country that has no history of statehood. He referred to the government here as being a colony run by a puppet regime. Uh, He accused the Ukrainian military of carrying out a blitzkrieg in Donbass 
Hamas, even though there is zero evidence to support this. He talked about uh, guerrilla terrorist activity taking place in Donbass as well. And really, you had the sense by the end of the speech that this was less about recognizing uh, Donetsk and Lugansk and more about potentially paving the way for future military action. Now, the question, Pamela, which is so crucial now, becomes, is this simply a strategy to go to the negotiating table now and say, I've recognized it, but I haven't annexed it yet. And if you give me some concessions, then potentially I am willing to hold back on that. Mm -hmm. Or is it already uh, a decision that's been made that they will go ahead with some kind of a military incursion. But I know that many analysts watching this speech tonight really had a shiver run down their spines. It was Mm -hmm. much more grim and much more ominous than I think many had expected. It might just be some perfunctory remarks acknowledging and recognizing uh, these two breakaway republics and leaving it at that. But Essentially, I think a lot of people here are now bracing themselves for what comes next. Is there another shoe to drop or is this simply diplomacy, uh, you know, a real hardball version of diplomacy? Right. And Alex, there has been an escalation of violence in eastern Ukraine. Uh, This area we're talking about, the Russian military is calling it Ukrainian sabotage. Ukraine is calling it disinformation. If you would tell us what is really happening on the ground Well, you know, this violence that we've seen really spike over the past few days, Pam, is now uh, raising fears that Putin could use that as a pretext for a larger scale invasion. I mean, uh, of course, Putin formalized the relationship tonight uh, between Moscow and those two breakaway enclaves. Uh, The Kremlin has in the past denied their support for them militarily. Of course, we know that to be true. Um, so, you know, what you could have now, because there is also this signing of, of, of an agreement of mutual assistance, you could hear from the leaders of those breakaway enclaves calling on Russia to come in uh, and, 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 bring, and bring the military uh, to help them against uh, this, uh, you know, this Ukrainian uh, offensive uh, that, that they accuse Ukraine of carrying out. Um, then you would have Russian forces on this breakaway territory. Uh, that Russia could then use uh, as a, a pretext um, if they claim that they are hurt uh, for going into Ukraine further. You heard Jill uh, read that really ominous line that, that President Putin ended his speech with, saying that the bloodshed would be on the hands of the regime uh, in Ukraine. Uh, now, we have already seen today accusations by Moscow that uh, Ukraine sent uh, a sabotage team into Russian territory that, that uh, fought with their border guards. Uh, we saw accusations that uh, Ukraine fired into Russian territory on a guardhouse. We have no way of verifying that. Ukraine denies it. Uh, but, Pam, this list of potential pretexts, uh, which, you know, the, 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 you know NATO and, and Ukraine see as potential false flag operations, really is growing. Uh, we've seen the leaders of these breakaway enclaves claim uh, that they need to evacuate their citizens, thousands of people uh, pouring into Russia because of what they claim uh, is, a, is a Ukrainian offensive that we really have seen no evidence uh, of. Uh, so th- this, uh, this agreement now between uh, President Putin and these uh, two breakaway areas really raising fears uh, that this, you know, this really will act as an excuse, as that pretext for, for Russia to further invade Ukraine. Yeah, that it's just the beginning. All right, Clarissa, Alex, Jill, thank you very much.
Are the sanctions President Biden is about to issue enough after Putin makes his first move? That's next. We're going to discuss that. And then what sparked a brawl at the end of a college basketball game? That's ahead. Welcome back. In our world lead today, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed documents recognizing two areas in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region as independent states. This area has had substantial backing from Moscow and has been led by pro-Russian separatists for years. And now President Biden is reacting, the White House announcing a looming executive order and sanctions in response to Putin. Let's discuss all of this with a former CIA chief of Russian operations, Steve Hall, CNN Global Affairs analyst Susan Glasser. She served as the Washington Post Moscow bureau chief and retired Brigadier General Peter Zwack. He was a senior defense official and attache to the Russian Federation when Russia invaded Crimea in 2014. Susan, let's start with you. The White House says Biden will sign an executive order imposing limited sanctions on anyone who operates in that disputed region. This is not part of the bigger sanctions package we've been hearing about. Do these limited sanctions really have enough teeth to do anything much at all to deter Putin? They're not the kind of sanctions that are designed for deterrence. They are a response to an action that's been taken by Putin. Obviously, this was something that the Biden administration was prepared to do. They understood all along that this was probably going to be part of Putin's playbook. That's why they're able to roll it out uh, right away uh, within hours of Putin making this announcement. You know, the the question is really uh, what kind of escalation Putin still has in mind uh, for this play that he's, uh, you know, invited us all to observe. And so that part is still unfolding. There's still 190,000 uh, uh, military force strong uh, surrounding Ukraine on three sides at this point. So I think we should see this as uh, a stage in a still unfolding drama. General CNN's Dana Bash asked Secretary of State Antony Blinken last month what the U.S. would do in this exact situation. Let's listen. Would seizing or recognizing the entire Donbass region qualify as an invasion and result in the crippling sanctions that you're threatening? If a single additional Russian force goes into Ukraine uh, in an aggressive way, uh, as I said, that would trigger uh, a swift, a severe and a united response uh, from us uh, and from Europe. General, do you think now is the time for the U.S. to impose the larger sanction package rather than what was announced today? Um, good afternoon, Serious Times. Uh, my, my question, I, am, uh, I have been against at this stage before about imposing sanctions, but um, I'm at a tipping point right now. Um, the Russians, uh, the Kremlin seems to be relentless, implacable, and, and they're not going to stop. And I, I support now a first round, as they've discussed, of targeted sanctions aimed primarily at those uh, linked to uh, Lugansk and Donetsk. However, key, key players uh, in Russia as well that are supporting it. So I'm not for the full, for the full package yet, but it's time to fire that sanction shot across the bow. And, you know, I want to go to you, Steve, on what we've just laid out and what Susan said about this being Putin's play, essentially. And we don't know what acts are to come. The bottom line, though, is what we do know is that there is a massive Russian troop buildup all around Ukraine. 
Do you really expect Putin to stop with, with the Donbass region, given how forceful he was in his speech today, claiming Ukraine belongs to Russia, talking about the Russian empire and so forth? Pam, right now, Vladimir Putin is like a toddler uh, with a big army. He's testing boundaries, as toddlers are wont to do. So we told him, if you invade Ukraine, really bad things are going to happen. You're going to go into timeout. And what's happened is he said, OK, how about this? I'm just going to recognize these two little parts of Ukraine, not call them Ukraine any longer. And then if I, if I send troops in there, will I be in timeout? Will I be sanctioned? Will I be in trouble? So it's really too soon to tell. It, it will be very simple because we saw this in Georgia uh, with the northern, uh, with those two northern states uh, that are that are now nominally independent, uh, Ossetia and Abkhazia. We've seen this before. Um, it would certainly be a good stepping off point, point for the Russian army to to be already in Donetsk and Luhansk, and then be able to move in uh, from there. But he's already got you know tons of troops uh, surrounding the country, so he could really do that anywhere. So right now, I think he's testing the West. He's going to say, okay, we're going to do this, and let's see what happens. And this is how this feels to most Ukrainians. If the Mexican government sent in a bunch of intelligence operatives to El Paso and said, hey, make a big stink and we'll come in and save you guys, because let's face it, Texas was part of Mexico to begin with, so we're just going to take it all back and don't worry about it. We'll support you. That's how this feels to Ukrainians right now. So we'll see whether, whether Putin says, yeah, we're going to go ahead and go further than that or, or whether he's going to hold there for a while. Yeah, we're all watching uh, at the edge of our seats, all of this unfold. And, you know, Susan, last night we were talking about the, the news of this potential summit. The White House says that Biden has agreed in principle to meet with Putin as long as Russia does not further invade Ukraine. Given this new development for Putin, do you think a summit still stands a chance? I wouldn't expect uh, President Biden to be meeting with Vladimir Putin anytime soon. That speech today was an extraordinary attack on the world order uh, that has existed and that Russia is a signatory to and a participant in since the end of the Cold War. Uh, Vladimir Putin today said uh, in, in as stark and alarming terms as I've ever heard him over two decades of his tenure in power, not only that the breakup of the Soviet Union is exactly what he's about revising here, but that Ukraine does not have the legitimacy to exist as an independent state. It was a very aggressive speech, highly <laughs> unlikely and uh, with just the mere paper takeover of the Donetsk Republic. So I would stay tuned, but not for a summit between the two leaders. Yeah, it, it was an aggressive speech. He clearly uh, was aggrieved and it went far beyond the moment of justifying the announcing the independence on Putin's side of the, these two regions. So we will continue to watch all of this. Thank you all very much. The flu shot may not be the only shot you get this fall, but Americans could start signing up for a fourth dose of the COVID vaccine. In our health lead, is a COVID booster the new flu shot? The FDA says it's considering whether it will need to authorize another dose of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines for the general public. Approval for the second booster could come as early as this fall. CNN's Athena Jones reports on what the science shows and where the U.S. stands right now. Could a fourth dose of COVID vaccine be coming your way? I think it's safe to assume that we're not done vaccinating for this virus. As new infections, deaths and hospitalizations decline, FDA officials are weighing if or when healthy adults in the United States could benefit from another booster shot. One official saying it could happen this fall. 
coinciding with when people get a flu shot. Respiratory infections like COVID and influenza tend to peak in winter. Many of us expect that in the years to come, we will have yearly doses of COVID vaccine the same way that we do for the flu vaccine in order to protect us against new variants that rear their head as we go into cold weather months. The FDA says it is closely monitoring data. But for now, most doctors say the focus should be on getting everyone who is eligible fully vaccinated and boosted. New COVID cases now average about 100,000 a day, the lowest level since early December. Hospitalizations are down 26 percent from last week. Still, just 28 percent of people have received a booster, and the pace of vaccinations is about the slowest it has ever been. When it comes to treatment, a new study, not yet peer-reviewed, shows Merck's antiviral drug Molnupiravir reduced the risk of hospitalization by 65 percent. Stronger results than previous studies of the pill. And another new study shows more children are hospitalized in a typical season for the flu than for COVID-19. Meanwhile, in the United Kingdom, Buckingham Palace announced 95-year-old Queen Elizabeth has COVID. The queen is in the highest risk group. She is experiencing mild, cold-like symptoms and is expected to continue light duties this week. If her symptoms uh, were initially mild and they remain mild and then start to dissipate, Uh, then the queen is moving absolutely in the right direction. If her symptoms worsen, well, that's a different story, and uh, and hopefully we won't see that. And the news about the queen comes as British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced the lifting of all remaining COVID-19 restrictions, part of his living with COVID plan. This means starting Thursday, people who test positive for the virus will not be required to self-isolate. And starting now, students and staff at schools will no longer have to be tested twice a week. Meanwhile, the UK health secretary announced the government will offer an additional booster dose to people at higher risk of serious COVID-19, including all adults over 75. Pam. All right, Athena Jones, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is Dr. Peter Hotez, co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. Nice to see you, Dr. Hotez. So Buckingham Palace says Queen Elizabeth is fully vaccinated, that she is experiencing mild symptoms and expects to continue to perform light duties. But she's also 95 years old and older people have been hit especially hard by the pandemic. How concerned should we be for her health? Well, hopefully she's uh, also because she is in a high risk group that she's getting uh, antiviral treatment, uh, either the Paxlovid drug from Pfizer or possibly one of the monoclonal uh, antibodies. And it wouldn't surprise me uh, that she's gotten both. And it also we don't really know what fully vaccinated means, whether that's two doses, three doses, how many months it's been since she got her booster dose. So all of those uh, are in the mix in terms of evaluating the best therapy for her. The FDA says that it is considering whether a fourth dose of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines might be recommended as the country moves into the fall. Do you think that this step is necessary? Yeah, it's looking like it might be, Pam. And the reason is because shortly after you get that third immunization, the booster, you have about 90 percent protection against getting hospitalized. But then after four months, it goes down to 78 percent against hospitalization and around 66 percent against an ER visit. So still good, but not as strong. So the question is, why is uh, is immunity truly waning or is it something unique to this Omicron variant? So by giving that booster, it potentially could restore it back up to those high numbers. The question is going to be if and when. Um, 
if if we don't expect another wave until an annual winter wave, we have the luxury of time and we can wait to doing something like that in the fall. But many of us are concerned that we've seen big peaks here in the southern states in Texas in 2020 and 2021, and maybe we'll have to do it sooner ahead of that summer wave. And then the bigger question is, What's the long-term plan? Uh, does this mean annual boosters? Do we have to uh, pivot to a different type of vaccine technology uh, as a heterologous booster? So we really need to bring bring smart people together to create a long-term vaccination strategy for the country. Yeah, still a lot of questions on that front. Also, a lot of questions on uh, what to do with kids and masking and so forth. There's this new study out published in JAMA Pediatrics today that found children were hospitalized with flu at a greater rate than with COVID. We've done a lot to protect kids during this pandemic, including closing schools and having students wear masks, which, as you as you know, is hotly debated. So when it comes to kids, given this, this new data, should we treat COVID as the flu? Well, let's take a step back. So first of all, um, when they were comparing old flu years to 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 COVID. So in the last two years, there's COVID-19 has caused almost 1,000 deaths among kids, uh, whereas flu has caused six deaths among kids, according to the CDC. But looking at older data in a bad flu year, um, they may be equivalent in terms of um, hospitalizations and deaths. And guess what? That's why we recommend getting an influenza vaccine for kids. And that's why we rec- recommend getting a COVID vaccine for kids. So we're going to need both. And maybe down, down the line, we look at co-formulating the to a combined influenza COVID vaccine. That might be something we'll look at. I think the other surprising finding of the study was that the hospitalizations from COVID were equal to the hospitalizations from that syndrome called multi-system inflammatory syndrome of kids, MISC. So it was higher than we thought. Bottom line is both, both viruses are bad actors and we need to vaccinate against both. All right, Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you. Thank you. Donald Trump is back on social media, but the truth is you may not be able to see what he is saying just yet. On this President's Day, former President Donald Trump is launching his brand new social media site. It's called Truth Social, and it's the MAGA alternative after Trump was kicked off Facebook and YouTube and Twitter last year in the wake of the January 6th insurrection. So let's bring in CNN's Oliver Darcy to talk more about this. All right. So, Oliver, truth is the rollout for Truth Social hasn't been so smooth, has it? No, it has not, Pam. I've been trying to actually sign up just to see what it looks like for myself. And I've been trying since this morning and I've been unable to actually get on the site. Uh, You can see here I'm still waiting for a verification code from the Truth Social folks and it hasn't come and it's been several hours. Uh, And before I even got to this page, I encountered token errors and all sorts of other problems. So it's not been going smooth for Trump. And I think this really shows it's not easy to start a social media site. You need a lot of expertise. You need a strong digital infrastructure. And clearly uh, the former president does not have that in this site. So what about the rules for this site? Can certain posts get users kicked off? Could the site become a megaphone for hate speech? You know, I was actually trying to look at the terms and conditions uh, for this platform, but unfortunately I was unable to do so because the website is so error ridden. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I came to look at it and I encountered a 404 page uh, and you can see that on the screen there. And so it, it really, you know, the, the, the website's really having a lot of trouble here. I, I do imagine that eventually 
there will be some sort of rules. I mean, there's got to be rules. You can't be posting, for instance, unlawful content. What's going to be interesting to see is what happens when people violate those rules, right? Because on Twitter and other apps, uh, conservatives, generally Trump supporters, have broken rules and been kicked off those platforms, including the former president. So when people violate the rules on Trump's platform, what's going to happen to them? It's going to be a really intriguing free speech issue to watch, and it could cause some headaches for the president if he has to take action against his own supporters. Right, because when they were kicked off, you know, for violating the rules, they complained. They said it was big tech coming after them and so Mm -hmm. forth. So it will be interesting to see what happens on that front with this new uh, social site by Trump. All right. Thanks so much, Oliver Darcy. We appreciate it. So let's discuss all this with Washington Post's Karun Demirjian and CNN's senior political analyst John Avlon, who is out with a new book, Lincoln and the Fight for peace. Congrats on that book, John. So up until now, Trump uh, put out statements on his website and aides would push them out on social media, as we know. Does this new website, Truth Social, give Trump a louder megaphone now, you think, John? (laughs) No. I mean, look, it's certainly an attempt to do that. But from the very name Truth Social, given that Trump was caught lying over 30,000 times as president, it's sort of an Orwellian absurdity. And and it's also sort of a grift. I mean, they clearly don't have their basic blocking and tackling together for a successful launch. Um, They've attracted a lot of money and and will have a lot of devoted users. Uh, But it being actually an ecosystem that can actually amplify the president's messages requires uh, speaking outside the echo chamber. This is an echo chamber exercise. That's all it is. So, no. Yeah. Uh, Karun, on that note, Trump's media company says the new app won't be fully operational until the end of next month. So I, I guess you can treat today as a soft lunch, soft <laughs> launch. But is it a bad look for Trump and his brand to have all these glitches on day one? I mean, of course, it's a bad look. If you want to say, look, we're going to make a splash in this area to come out and have the splash be, you know, like drips and that they're not actually forming even a puddle is not the greatest of of looks. But the question really is how patient is the base of his supporters that would probably gravitate toward this site in the first place going to be over the next six weeks until maybe it gets up and running a little better? What is it going to look like once it does? Is it going to be something that is, you know, looks like other social media sites that we're familiar with? Or is it going to be more of just a a, a platform where, you know, you'll see these types, sorts of views from the president be put out there to his followers. These are all open questions still. And so I think, you know, certainly uh, they're hoping that everybody just sits tight and stays tuned and is equally champing at the bit to get on board in about six weeks time. We'll see if that is actually the case or if people get a little impatient waiting. All right. I want to turn to the breaking news today. Of course, that has to do with Russia, Ukraine, the evolving crisis there. The current president, Joe Biden, faces one of the most consequential matters of his presidency, a potential military conflict between Ukraine and Russia. Do his decisions so far, John, seem to have the support of Congress and more importantly, the American people? Uh, Yes. I mean, look, the Republican Party, there's actually a a broader coalition of folks who are trying to be consistent around the party's uh, historic internationalism and defense of international organizations like NATO. But the loudest group is the Trumpists, who are basically isolationists. And you hear a lot of whataboutism and and sort of de facto uh, uh, Putin endorsing when it comes to at least statements like, I don't really care about Ukraine. This isn't a luxury. The U.S. doesn't have the luxury to care uh, to care or not care when a sovereign nation is invaded. We are invested. We helped create the international liberal order that has created 75 years of peace and prosperity after the Second World War. 
And whenever Vladimir Putin is trying to invade another country by whatever pretext, uh, that's a threat to freedom and security and safety. So you'd think we'd be able to put our partisan uh, blinders aside. Do you think, though, Karun, that the administration has been effective at communicating why Americans should care what Putin does 5,000 miles away, why U.S. troops could be involved in this conflict? I mean, well, they're certainly trying to, but the question is if that's really their audience that they're communicating to right now. I mean, right now, this has been moving fits and starts. Every day seems to have a new development. Today's of Russia recognizing Donetsk and Luhansk as independent republics opens the door potentially for them to invite his Russian troops in to bring the battle lines that much closer to Kiev-controlled Ukraine. And the Biden administration has been declassifying a lot of intelligence, trying to operate quickly to kind of cut off Putin's plans at the pass before he can exercise them. So They've been primarily occupied with doing that, not so much, you know, there have been public statements made to the American public, but the main campaign hasn't been to win American hearts and minds so much. And remember, this is, uh, you know, domestically speaking, we've got a fairly war-weary population. We've just come off of 20 years of that. Yes, we're not sending U.S. troops into Ukraine, but there's this this element of, you know, tiredness, I guess. I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it skepticism, but tiredness. And I think that depending on what happens in the days ahead, the administration is going to have to explain the rest of that story. We are still kind of in a a waiting period to see what happens to get out of this limbo. Whatever that is, the president's going to have to tell the United States population why he's reacting the way he is. Right. And also explain why uh, prices of the pump are going up so much and so forth if an invasion happens. John, on this President's Day, you were out with this new book about our nation's 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. The new book is called Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. Here it was a president struggling with how to end a military conflict. Tell us about it. Well, a civil war, of course, but Lincoln was facing a problem without precedent. There'd never been a civil war on that scale before. Um, You know, America was the world's sole democracy, but a lot of the themes are deeply resonant. You had a a political party denying the legitimacy of Abraham Lincoln's election uh, and a deeply divided nation. And he was able to be a uniter in divided times. He was able to prosecute a war while maintaining his commitment to an absence of malice. And it's that commitment to winning the peace that I think is one of Lincoln's greatest gifts to us. It requires unconditional surrender and then building our enemies back up, um, recognizing that even in the middle of a civil war, there's more than unites us than divides us as Americans. Lincoln was able to achieve that. And even though he wasn't to implement his vision because of his assassination, that vision lived on and was actually found its ultimate culmination in the investment in peace that was the Marshall Plan, which is the uh, table setter for what we're seeing today. All right, John Karun, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. Congrats again on your book, John. Thanks, Pamela. Well, Canada trying to turn back trucker-inspired protests by cutting off the cash that's been fueling their blockade. That's next. And the money lead. Canada is cracking down on protests at the border by freezing bank accounts of those involved. Today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said his country has blocked foreign money funding illegal blockades and called out the protesters. You can disagree with elected officials. You can certainly disagree with me. But you can't harass your fellow citizens who disagree with you. You can't hold a city hostage. CNN's Paula Newton is in Ottawa. So, Paula, is this financial approach working? 
Uh, it seems to be working, and the government had promised to follow the money. But here's the thing. This is a, a, an Emergencies Act, right? And it takes away civil liberties, which is what allows a lot of this follow-the-money mantra uh, to really stick. And now, this is an act. It was 1988, never been used. It was drafted in 1988. And now they're actually going to have a court challenge as to whether or not it can stay in place. On top of that, we have a parliamentary vote on it tonight at 8 p.m. But let's get to how it works. Police say they have already frozen the accounts of more than 200 people, and that is linked to both business and personal accounts. What else have they done? You know, the protesters were literally bragging about the fact that they were getting digital currency. Well, 253 Bitcoin uh, addresses have now been frozen. $3.8 $3.8 million Canadian, uh, and those were a, f- a frozen payment system, which meant that, look, Pam, if you were going to actually pay with a credit card, that credit card was no longer processed, and those funds were frozen. This is also interesting, though. Four, 56 vehicles were actually tagged to their owners. That meant that licenses could be pulled and insurance could be pulled. And, and this, the prime minister says, is working. Police agree with them, and they say it is actually stopped the flow of money, including from the United States, to these protesters. And this comes after protesters were using children as shields to keep police away. Yeah, this was actually so alarming. I saw the children myself at the protests and Ottawa police followed up that even when police were using aggressive action on the streets of Ottawa, that a few families still brought their children close. Again, this law made that illegal. It gave the parents a $5,000 fine. Uh, Thankfully, Pam, I have to say, no children, of course, were hurt. But still, uh, unprecedented tactics here that police say they really wanted to stop. Pam? Paula Newton, thank you. Well, it was not a player who started the full court brawl after a college basketball game. That's next. In our sports lead, a post-game brawl between two fierce college basketball rivals. Michigan head coach Jawan Howard gave a Wisconsin assistant coach the Fab Five after a double-digit loss on Sunday. The ugly scene started during post-game handshakes. The two head coaches could be seen arguing, and then it devolves into chaos after Howard strikes an opposing coach. Staff and players were seen pushing and shoving with members of both teams appearing to throw punches with Big Ten Conference. Says it is still investigating and will take appropriate disciplinary action. Nice job saying a good example, Coach. Well, I'm Pamela Brown, and for Jake Tapper, our coverage continues with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.